Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So today we are continuing a series uh, called Kingdom Come. And this series, what we're doing is we're examining some prophecy from the Old Testament and we're laying it up against the birth of Christ and the life of Christ and how it was fulfilled in his life. Um, the season we're in is so much about anticipation. We're anticipating Christmas. We've got a lot of IEP students that are anticipating getting done with finals and being able to take some time off and have a break. And some, some of them are like, yes, right now, we're ready to leave. Um, some of you are ready to have some time off from work. The kids are ready to have the presents, right? Um, and I'll be honest with you, Christmas comes early. Um, I don't do this often. Today is the last day that the Meadows is open for the season. <laughs> And it's peanut butter Oreo swirl day. Give him glory, people. Give him glory. So I'm dedicated to my weight loss thing, though. So I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to actually eat ice cream today, but I'm going to buy like three quarts for the coming months just uh, for my cheat days that will come. But there's a sense of anticipation when it comes to Christmas. And really, when we look at the prophecy from the Old Testament, what we know is that the the prophecy would come and it would bring hope because there's this anticipation about what was to come. That, hey, things won't always stay the way they are because we've got hope for a future. And what we see in Scripture is there was about 300, over 300 prophecies about Christ. Um, some of them were messianic. Some of them were pictorial. The messianic prophecies would foretell who Christ was. Uh, it would be very specific. There were at least 60 of those. They were very, very specific that Christ fulfilled. And then there was about 240 that were broader, they were pictorial, and what they would do is they would foreshadow. So they would, they would take a situation in the Old Testament, and it would foreshadow who Christ was going to be. It wouldn't be specific, but there was a prophecy for them that day, but it also carried forth that you could look back in hindsight and, goes here and say, here's how these two line up. And so between those prophecies, though, it's shocking that Christ could fulfill them all. Uh, and I talked about this last week, we won't go into as much detail, but for one person to fulfill eight of the prophecies at random, the odds of that happening, according to mathematicians, is it's one in 100 quadrillion that that could happen. And to put this into perspective, one in 100 quadrillion is if I gave you a silver dollar and asked you to mark the silver dollar and then place it randomly somewhere in the state of Texas, and then we buried the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, and we picked at random the right silver dollar. That's the odds that one man could fulfill only eight of the prophecies, let alone the 300. So when we see this, to me, it, is, it brings more um, legitimacy to the fact that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. He was the hope of creation. He was the Messiah that, that generations had waited for. And so when we look at this, it just helps us see that, that he really is who he said he is. So when we look at the prophecy we're looking at today, I want you to keep in mind that the context we're looking at it in, they were, it was very different than it is today. So we're going to look at a prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 31. And in Jeremiah 31, 15, this is what it says. It says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Isn't that just an encouraging verse? Then just bless you. Some of you are like, I need to get a tattoo of that right now, but don't do it. Um, so this is a prophecy, and it doesn't seem like prophecy, but it aligns with what we see in the book of Matthew. So let me give you some context of what's going on here. <clears throat> so Jeremiah was a prophet. Um, he and 
Isaiah, they weren't necessarily contemporaries, they weren't peers, but there's a good chance that Isaiah, who we talked about last week, mentored Jeremiah. So they knew each other. Um, and so as a result, they probably had similar mindsets and similar views on things. And what we see with Isaiah and Jeremiah both were really all the prophets. These guys were direct. They could be very mean sometimes. And, um, and sometimes people think I'm mean. You need to meet Jeremiah. This guy's a jerk sometimes. So uh, Jeremiah would speak directly to, he would bring indictments on uh, the nation of, of and it, remember this is the same context, there's two, there two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. <clears throat> and by this time, the northern kingdom of Israel was largely dispersed. Uh, so the kingdom of Judah remains. And so he would bring indictments on the nation of Judah. Uh, he would bring indictments on the priests of Judah. He would bring indictments on the king of Judah because he would speak directly what God had spoken to him. And the people didn't always line up with what God had won for them. So he would, he would be mean at times, but he was always speaking truth. What we see is he lived during a very tumultuous time in the life of this nation. Uh, Judah had been invaded three different times by the Babylonians. This happened in 605, 597, and 586. And what, what would happen typically during foreign invasions, and we see this is true in the Old Testament as well, is that they would come in and they would take the best resources, they would take the best and the brightest people, the people from certain social classes, uh, from certain ethnicities, things like that, and they would take the best and the brightest to Babylon so that they could be indoctrinated into Babylonian culture. So they would basically erase the Judean culture, the, the Israel, uh, Israeli culture. Um, and so Jeremiah sees all this happening and his heart is broken over it. So just to put this in context, um, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, if you've been a part of church for a long time, you might have known the story of Daniel and the lion's den. So Daniel, this took place when Daniel was taken from Israel to Babylon. And so they would take these young men, the, um, the three Hebrew children, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, the three Hebrew children, these were part of this initial group that was probably taken to Babylon. And so Jeremiah sees this not once, not twice, but three times, the best and the brightest, the country stripped of the most intelligent people, the, the, the brightest people, the, the sharpest people, the people that are making the biggest difference. Uh, he sees his friends, his family all taken to, to Babylon. And when they see them taken away, there's not this hope that they're going to see them again sometime. When they see their friends and family taken away, there's this understanding that they will probably die in exile. That they're never going to see this home again. I'm never going to see the people I love again. And so he's heartbroken over the situation. Now, in this passage, it says that Rachel is weeping, that, that there's a word in, in Rama. So it says, a voice is heard in Rama and a lamentation of bitter weeping. And it's Rachel who's weeping for her children, is what it says. Now, Rachel, um, this, is, this is not literal. It's, it's, it's a picture. It's a metaphor. Um, Rachel is the wife of Jacob. So in Jewish history, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the main patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Um, Jacob, his name was eventually changed to Israel by God. And that's where the nation of Israel gets their name from today. And Jacob's favorite wife was uh, a woman named Rachel, and, um, and I will tell you, Kim is my favorite wife, so <laughs> just for the record, if anybody was wondering. Um, so Rachel was his favorite wife, and she was the one that he, he deeply loved, that, that they were truly in love. And she had two children um, by, uh, by Jacob or by Israel, uh, Joseph and Benjamin, and she died during birth, the birth of Benjamin, and she was eventually buried at uh, Ephrath, and Ephrath is another name for 
Bethlehem. Um, Ramah, where it says this, this crying and wailing is coming from, is not far from Bethlehem, just about 10 miles away from Bethlehem, is this town called Ramah. And the reason Ramah was significant in this day and age was because this is where the Babylonians would take the exiled Jewish people from. He, they would take them to Ramah, and that's where they would stage them. That's where these detainees were taken before they were taken on to, to Babylon. And so what he's saying, what the prophet is saying is, um, Rachel sees what's happening to her children, to her people, and she is wailing. Her heart is broken to see what's going on. Now, this is what you have to understand. There was a promise that was given to, both, uh, to all three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that, they, that the, their seed, their offspring, would bless the entire world. And, and so put yourself in this context for a minute. When you see your people being scattered to the winds, when you see your people being eliminated, and you go, wait a second, God, we had a promise that our people would bless the earth, but now I see our people scattered. The, the hope that we had is disappearing. I, th I thought you made me a promise, God. I thought things were supposed to be good. I thought things were supposed to be right, but it doesn't look like that, and it looks hopeless at this point. Now, you might not be able to sympathize with that situation, but you can probably sympathize with that feeling, can't you? This moment where you go, wait a second, things seem hopeless. Uh, can things possibly get any worse than they are? Because I think this is rock bottom. Are we be able to get, ever going to get out of this? I don't think we will. Look how desperate it seems. And this is where the nation of Judah was. They felt desperate. They felt hopeless. They felt like we have no future, even though God said we have a future. Does God even see us? Does he even know us? Does he even sense what we're going through? And this is where they were. Now, fast forward this story about 450 years to the book of Matthew chapter 2. So in Matthew chapter 2, uh, we come to a guy in the story of Jesus named Herod the Great. And he might have given himself the great title, but he was Herod the Great. If you have to give yourself a nickname, it's probably not that good a nickname anyway. So that's why T-Bone never took off for me. I could have, no, call me T-Bone. Never, so. <laughs> so Herod the Great, he was the king over this region. Uh, he came to power uh, because, uh, well, to be honest with you, Rome was over this area, and he went to Rome to petition the Senate for a friend of his to become the king of this area. So he was petitioning for someone else, and the Senate recognized something in him, and they made him the king. So he goes back to, uh, to this area, and he has to fight a battle for a couple of years to basically wrestle control, even though he has control, and he becomes the king of this area. And he's known, his reign is known for just his aggressive building program, so structures and buildings. Um, he was responsible for the second temple built in, in Jerusalem. And so the Jews, it bought him some favor with the Jews. Uh, the Romans loved him because he was... He was subservient to them, um, but he was still doing some big things. And so he was just trying to be liked by as many people as possible, unless you happen to be somebody who wanted to be king. And then he would kill you. Um, and we see this is true in his life. He was especially ruthless when it came to threats to his throne. Um, he killed three of his own sons. And he, uh, he might have killed, had his first wife and first son killed as well. At the very least, though, he had them banished because they interfered with his, the, the prospect of gaining more authority and power. So this was a guy, he was ruthless. And when he became the king, according to the, the Roman Senate, they named him, in quotes, king of the Jews. 
Does that sound familiar to anybody? Um, if you want to know more about Herod, uh, I actually preached an entire message about him uh, a, a year ago this time. And so you can go back in the archives and find that if you're interested. But um, Herod was maniacal in many ways. History bears this out. Um, he was probably uh, one of the most insecure leaders you're ever going to find. And he was minding his own business when one day three magi, according to the Greek, three wise men showed up in his court and they said, we are looking for the newborn king of the Jews. And you have to know that that piqued his interest because he must have been thinking, that's me. You're talking about me. That's my throne, right? And so he said, you know what, I'm, I'm curious as well. So they called his wise men out, the, the, the people in his court, and he asked them, and they quoted Micah 5.2, which was um, a prophecy, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. It was a prophecy about Christ or the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. And so they said, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so they talked to the, the Magi about that, and then he pulls the Magi aside, and he says, you know what, guys, i got to be honest with you. I would love to worship this king of yours as well. So why don't you go find him and come back and report to me. Tell me where he's at because I would love to worship him too. Right? And so they agree. <clears throat> and so they go, they find Christ, they worship him, they bring him priceless gifts, they lay them at his feet, they worship him together. And then the angel of the Lord says, hey, don't go back to Herod. You need to go a different way. So they depart to their home a different way is what Scripture says. Uh, the angel of the Lord came to Joseph as well in a dream and said, Joseph, you've got to take your family and go to Egypt because the king is going to try to kill your son. And so sure enough, they do. They flee to Egypt. And how bad a day do you think that must have been for Joseph and Mary? That they have this unexpected pregnancy. Um, they have a pregnancy that is suspicious to most people at best. Um, they're dishonorable by a lot of people's standards because of the way the pregnancy came forth and I'm not sure if we can trust all those kind of things. And now, not only can they not go back to their home, they have to go to Egypt. They're exiles. They're refugees to Egypt. They had to be thinking, God, this isn't what we had in store. This isn't the plan. Like, it's not enough that we have to carry the Savior of the universe, right? But now we've got to move to Egypt and we've got to just... just uproot our lives. We've got to be away from family. We've got to find a new community. All these things, this is not what we planned. This is not what we expected, God. I thought you had better plans for me than this. Now again, there's some conjecture here, but if they're human beings, they were probably asking those kind of questions. Now, now think about this for a second. They left, and Herod is a maniac. So let's read what happened next. This is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had been, had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So you have Ramah and Bethlehem, not far apart geographically. You have the nation of Israel weeping and mourning the loss of their children who've been exiled and taken into captivity. And then you have in Bethlehem, can you imagine the heartache, the pain of these, these mamas who had their doors kicked down, 
by, by the kill squad coming to kill their innocent child? Can you imagine the heartache of losing a child that way? I, I can't imagine how painful it is to lose a child. I absolutely cannot. So can you imagine the grief that this community shared? The, the collective cry that arose from their hearts because of what was happening? And I think something that's similar in both situations is this question comes up, God, are you really good? How could you let something like this happen? I thought you were good. I thought you had a plan for me. I thought there was a purpose for me. See, this, this question arose in both situations. God, you had a promise for the whole world. Are you breaking your promise? What is to become of God's seed what is to become of God's covenant promise? Is it ever going to be fulfilled? You might not be able to relate to this specifically, but all of us have suffered. All of us have been hurt. All of us have been disappointed. All of us have gone through seasons when we say, God, do you even see where I'm at? Do you even know the pain I'm dealing with today? There's a passage in Romans chapter 5. I shared this passage with the church a few years ago and walked through it. I won't spend as much time on it today. But this is what it says in Romans 5, 2. It says, through him, talking about Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now this is a passage that we can hear on a Sunday morning or when we're at church and we go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But this is a passage that if you're in the midst of suffering, if you're hurting and, and some friend comes up to you and says, hey, don't you worry. Because suffering leads to endurance, and endurance leads to character, and character leads to hope, so everything's going to be fine. Like, that's your cue to punch them right in the throat, like a, <laughs> right? Like, hi in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Squarely in the throat. Because if we're going to be honest, what we don't need when we're suffering are Christian platitudes, do we? Well, when God opens the door or closes the door, he opens the window. That's not in Scripture, by the way. We have these Christianese things we throw out and it doesn't help. And so we hear something like this and, and this is the last thing I want to hear if I'm suffering. But, but when Paul wrote this to the Roman church, um, what he was trying to help them understand, Paul's, Paul's writing is all about maturity. It's all 100% about us becoming who God wants us to be, becoming mature in our faith. And so when Paul's writing this, he's writing it in such a way that he's trying to help them understand, hey, Suffering stinks, doesn't it? It hurts. But the problem is when we suffer and we don't move past our suffering at all. And what he's saying is mature believers will take our suffering and will say to God, God, I can't take this. I'm not going to wallow in this suffering, but I can't take this anymore. So God, I'm giving you my suffering. And I need you to share the load in this suffering because I can't carry the suffering on my own. And what happens is, what we see happens is, um, endurance begins to be built in our lives. And it's little by little, it's incremental. We don't even see it happening. 
But the more we trust God with our pain, the more we trust God with our hurt and our heartache, the more he takes that load off of us and the more we can stand up under the weight of suffering. This might surprise you, but I ran track in high school. Maybe it doesn't surprise you because I'm looking fantastic. Uh, (laughs) So I ran track in high school. Um, I ran middle distance, so I ran like the half mile. And every year at the beginning of track season, I would go back on the track team and we would start our runs, our conditioning, and I would remember why I hated track. I never want to do track again. This is stupid. Idiots run for no reason. Why would I like make myself do this, all right? And, and what would happen is first few conditioning runs of the year, like, you, you know, you felt terrible, your legs are wobbly, your stomach, and you, eh, your sides, my sides, hurt, all those kind of things, right? But the longer you push through the pain, the more accustomed to it you get. By the end of the season, you felt good. You could go on your runs, didn't hurt. Why? Because your body acclimated. You, you learned endurance, in spite of your pain and suffering. The suffering helped train your body. And what happens for so many of us as believers is we get to a place of pain in our soul and we stop and we go, this stinks, God, get me out of here, right? I quit. And God goes, you haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. But I don't want to because this hurts. And God says, give me some of your pain. Give, Give me your suffering. I'm going I'm to help you learn how to walk in suffering well. And so what happens is we begin giving God our suffering. We, we learn incrementally how to walk through our trials a little better. And as we learn how to walk through our trials better, it leads to us developing character. I used to hate it when my dad, I would do something that I didn't want to do, and my dad would say, oh, it's building character. I'm like, I don't want to build character. I don't want to dig this hole anymore, right? <laughs> but it's true, because the more we learn how to live well in our pain and our suffering, the more we see the heart of God in our lives. Because we think we see God best when we're at our best, but we don't. Paul said that God's strength is made perfect in Paul's weakness. That's what God said to Paul. When Paul was at his worst, that's when he saw God the brightest in his life. When we're at our worst, when we're suffering and we learn how to suffer well, we learn how to endure through our suffering, that's when God shows up and we see his heart for us like never before. And let me say this too. When we suffer well, that's when the world sees God most clearly in us as well. So our character starts to get built. And the reason our character starts to get built is because when we're at our worst, we have to rely on God. And when we rely on God, that's when we start to come into alignment with his, pur- his purposes for our lives, with his plans for our lives. We begin seeing things the way God sees them. And so our character begins to be built. And because our character is built, because we learn to know God more intimately, something develops in us. There's a fruit and that what's produced in us is hope. Because we say, you know what, these circumstances stink. What I'm dealing with stinks. I hate this. But do you know what? God is still good. I have hope because I see God working in my life, even in these horrible circumstances, even in my heartache, even in my failure. I see God working. So I have hope for the future. Um, There is a psychiatrist. His name was Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl, he wrote extensively about despair and 
Um, he knew a lot about despair because he personally endured um, Nazi concentration camps. He survived concentration camps. So he had seen heartache before uh, beyond what any of us could ever imagine. And he came up with a formula for despair. And the formula was D equals S minus M. Some of you are thinking, I thought there would be no math on this quiz. And that's right, there's no math. Uh, D stands for despair. S stands for suffering. M stands for meaning. So what he said is despair is suffering without meaning. So when we are suffering in our lives and we feel like we're suffering for no purpose, for no reason, and we feel like there's no hope of it getting better, that's when we will despair. When we can assign meaning to our suffering, that's when we can walk through our suffering a little bit better. So as a Christian, when I can look at the things I'm suffering with and struggling with and say, God, I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't understand it. It hurts, and I want to be removed from it, but I, I still know you're good. And if you have a plan through this, then I'm going to trust you. That is the only pathway through suffering. Because I think we've all seen people, and maybe you are someone, whose tragedy has struck your life, and you've frozen yourself in that place. You've locked yourself in that season of suffering, and you can't move on. So essentially what Frankel says is if we can assign a meaning or a value to that suffering, then we can navigate it. We can get through it. There's a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and some of you have heard of Kierkegaard before, well-known. Um, some of the students maybe have studied him in school at IUP, but um, he wrote a book in 1849 called The Sickness Unto Death. And some of you, I'm going to save you, you don't have to look it up on Amazon, you don't have to, because I know a lot of you right now are buying the Danish philosophy book on Amazon right now. I'm going to save you the time and money. I'm going to tell you what he wrote in the book. Um, so in the book, what he said basically is, um, the, the premise is, the title um, is, oh, what is it again? I want to read it. Well, the sickness unto death. And what it's taken from is Jesus, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he hears that Lazarus is dying, and he says this sickness will not lead to death. That's what he tells his disciples. And this is where Kierkegaard gets the title. Because Kierkegaard's um, idea is that, hey, there was joy, there was sadness, there was heartache, th there was heaviness, whatever you want to call it, because Lazarus died. And there was joy when he was raised from the dead. And Kierkegaard said um, there would have been joy even if he hadn't been raised from the dead. Because true joy isn't found in this life. True joy is found in the fact that Lazarus would be alive for eternity with Christ. That's basically what he said. I just saved you some time and money right there. <laughs> so essentially what he's saying is this, that, that a person in despair has lost their way, has lost themselves, and they've gotten out of alignment with Christ. And th this is... And this is everything. This is 1849. He's saying, you know what? If, if somebody's in despair, they've forgotten who they are in Jesus. That they've, they're misaligned with God's purposes and plans for their life. Because if they understood God's purpose for their life, if they understood the plan that God's got for them, then there would be no reason to despair. Because they would see a glimpse of what God sees for their lives. They would understand that God's got more for them than this present suffering than what we're walking through right now. That it's so much bigger than that. And so what Kierkegaard says lines up perfectly with what we just read in Romans. That suffering 
leads to endurance if it's submitted to God. And that endurance will eventually bloom into character, and that character will produce hope in our lives if we'll just trust God in our suffering, if we'll submit our suffering to him. And this is what the nation of Judah did. This is what these moms and dads who lost their children had to have done. God, we're suffering, we're hurting, we need you. We don't know how to process this, so we're going to give it to you. We're asking you to heal our hurt, heal our pain. Walk us through this time of loss, this suffering. We believe that there's hope on the other side of this, God. And if you look at this formula, hope is available, but it's only on the other side of suffering. See, when we suffer, sometimes we think God is not a good God. But the truth is, God is good. <laughs> but if we're going to be honest, if you didn't hear him on the balcony, he said all the time, come on, let's be honest though. There's times where we're walking through stuff and we go, this doesn't feel like God's good. Feels like God's mad at me. Feels like God's upset with me. But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. He, he is a good God and he keeps his promises to us. Let me read this passage to you in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says this, I'm sorry, verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So this is what he says. This is what the writer of Hebrews says here. He says, let us hold fast to our confession of faith, our confession of hope. This is what you have to understand. When we are walking through suffering, the last thing we want to do is talk about how good things are. So that's why, if we're going to be honest, that's why a lot of people, when they're going through dark seasons in their lives, difficult situations, they don't want to come to church. Because we feel like at church everything's got to be perfect, and if things aren't perfect, then they're going to think I'm a bad Christian, I don't love Jesus enough, and I'm just going to retreat from godly community, I'm going to retreat from the people that love me, I'm going to retreat from the people that want to support me. So we go through a bad season and we just leave the church, we leave small groups, we leave serving, all those kind of things, a safety net is left behind us. Because people feel guilty because they don't feel perfect and their lives aren't rosy. Um, and we don't want to come in and fake it. We don't want to say, how are you doing? I'm great. Things are good. When we know our kids hate us, right? We know that finances stink. We don't even know how we're going to pay the bills. Our, our marriage is difficult. Oh, I'm doing wonderful. And really, we're just putting on a front. And I'm not saying we should come in and just dump our baggage on everyone, but that makes us say, I'm going to retreat from godly community. And what we see here is this understanding that, um, that we hold on to our confession of hope. And it doesn't mean we lie about our circumstance. What it means is we remember why we've got reason to hope. So instead of saying something like, hey, how you feeling? You know what? I feel bad all the time. I hurt and I feel sick, and the diagnosis is not good, and I mean, I'm just being realistic, I'm probably going to die. Maybe that's a little dramatic, but that's how some of us are. Instead of that, maybe we say, you know what? Circumstances don't look good, but I know God's good. I've got reason to hope, because my God can heal any of my physical issues, so you know what? I'm just trusting him. What a dramatic difference that is. Because what we're confessing over our lives, what we're speaking is 
you know what, this is the way things are, but I know God is a God of hope, that he is a God that can shift my circumstance to situation. So I'm trusting him, I'm believing him. And beyond that, even if he doesn't heal me, God's still good. There's something, one person was like, yes, that's good. Everybody else was like, shut up, stop clapping. <laughs> I, am not, um, I am not of the persuasion that just because you say something out loud, it's going to come to pass. But there's something powerful about our words bringing alignment with our hearts. So when we begin to say the right things, it begins to bring our heart into alignment with those words. So maybe we don't feel like trusting God in our circumstance, in our suffering, in our hurting, but when we begin to say the right things like, God, I don't know how you're going to fix this, but I know you're good and I know you've got this. It's amazing how our heart will shift. Um, he says we hold on, hold fast to the confession of our hope. We don't let it go. We don't forget about it. We don't lay it aside. We hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. Why, why can we do that? It's this last part. It says, for he who promised is You've had promises broken to you hundreds of times in your life. Maybe it was your spouse. I'll be home at five o'clock, right? That one's irregular for some of you. Maybe it was something much more serious, like I promise to love and hold till death do us part. You've had promises broken to you over time, and sometimes it makes it easy for us not to trust people and to expect them to break their promises. But this is what I want you to know. Our Heavenly Father never, ever, 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 ever breaks his promises. He is faithful. If he made you a promise, you can take it to the bank. It is a guarantee. It might not happen in the time that you would like it to happen. It might not happen in the way you would like it to happen, but it will happen without a doubt. <laughs> so we have reason to hope today. <laughs> this is going to be a Debbie Downer for you. Um, Judah, the nation of Judah never saw their promise fulfilled in their lives. They knew that God was going to send a Messiah, and they expected that Messiah to come and bring the children of Israel back and make everything right right then, and it didn't happen in their lifetime. But that promise was fulfilled. 450 years later, God sent his son into the world to, to be born of a Virgin Mary, to live a perfect, sinless life, to, to lay down his life, to pay the price for our sins on the cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was raised three days later. He lived on this earth for about 40 more days. He ascended into heaven, and now he's at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, making intercession for us. That's our hope. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all received the promise, your offspring will bless the entire world. And the reason we have reason to hope today is that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've dealt with, no matter how much heartache you have today, I want you to know, and I don't want to, downplay what you're dealing with at all. I want you to know there's reason to hope. It's not because your circumstances are going to magically get fixed, but it's because we have hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That he is the hope 
of the world. I want you to know something. You might be praying for God to save your marriage, and God can, but he doesn't force people against their will. So you might be praying that God will save your marriage and your spouse is not interested. The divorce might end up happening, and if it happens, you're gonna be thinking, God, don't you love me? Aren't you good? The truth is, he's still good. You might be praying for healing, and maybe the healing doesn't happen the way you think it will. The question is, God, are you still good? And the answer is yes, God is still good in spite of that. So I want you to know today, we have reason to hope that just like Kierkegaard said, our hope isn't in this world. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in eternity. I don't know why you're dealing with the things you're dealing with. I don't know why you're going through the things you're going through. I don't know why you have to suffer. It doesn't make sense, but I do know there's hope in our suffering if we'll submit it to Christ. Soren Kierkegaard actually said this one time. He said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. So this is what we say today. We say, God, I don't understand why I deal with these things. I don't understand why I have to navigate these things, but I know you're good. And all the future is unknown, you are known, and I'm gonna trust you with my future. I'm gonna have hope for my future because you are good. So my challenge to you today is quite simple. Can you learn to submit your suffering to Christ? Can you learn to, to endure under that suffering? Can you learn to see the character of God and come into alignment with him? Because if you can do that, if you can trust God for that, then you will have birth, hope birthed in your life. This is a season of hope. This is a season of new beginnings. I believe God wants to bring hope to you today. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes and pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to pay the price for us on the cross. Thank you for loving us so extravagantly that you gave up your most valuable possession, your son, to know us. God, I pray that we would not take that lightly today. Lord, you didn't Send your son just simply to allow us to go to heaven someday. But God, you desire for us to live well in this life. Uh, God, part of living well is to be able to live with hope in desperate and hopeless situations. So God, I pray today for those that are here that are brokenhearted, for those that are here that, that feel the weight of despair in their lives. God, I pray that you would help them turn their suffering over to you, hand it over to you. And as they do, little by little, God, I pray that they would see endurance begin to grow in their lives. Lord, let us walk well under the weight of suffering. And as we do, God, let it be a reflection of your goodness to the world around us. And God, as we learn to do that well, God, show us who you are more and more. Help us to come into alignment with you more and more. And as you do that, God, let hope be birthed in our hearts. God, I pray that the hope in our lives would not be based on our circumstance, but would be based solely on our relationship with you. So God, have your way among us today. God, I pray for parents that are struggling with kids in desperate situations. Bring hope. God, I pray for those who've had a terrible diagnosis from a doctor. God, I pray, bring hope today. God, I pray for those that are struggling in marriages that seem like they're on the brink. Bring hope today. God, I pray for the students that feel overwhelmed with the pressures 
they feel hopeless, God, bring hope today. God, let us be a people who suffer well, who see what you see. God, I pray for those that are here that have never really known the hope of Christ because they're not in relationship with Christ. Let today be the day they surrender their lives to you and know the one true hope of this world. God, I pray that you remove the roadblocks, the fear, the apprehension. Let your Holy Spirit draw them gently today. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, nobody's looking around. I just want to ask you if you're here today and you say to me, Mel, that's me. I don't really know true hope because I'm not really in relationship with Christ, but today I, I want to know him. I want to know hope. I want to, I want to experience what that's like. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. I'm not going to bring you forward or embarrass you. I just want to pray with you right where you are. So if that's you, would you be bold enough to say, Mel, pray for me today. That's me. And raise your hand real high where I can see it. Thank you. Who else would say, pray for me, Mel? I need that hope that you're talking about. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today. Yeah, thank you over here on my right. Thank you on my left, ma'am. Yeah, I see you in the back. You can put your hand down. Praise the Lord. Who else would join these? Just a few more seconds and say, Mel, pray for me. Today's my day. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. All right, I'd like every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, just to pray this prayer with me out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving your life to pay the price for my sins. From now on, my life is yours. Use it for your glory. Help me to get out of my despair and my suffering and trust you with my pain. Help me live a life that points people back to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause today. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, the Word of God tells us if you confess with your heart that Jesus is Lord and you believe with your mouth, or you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ raised, or God raised him from the dead, you are saved. So you're a new creation today. The old is gone and the new has come. And that doesn't mean all your circumstances are magically fixed, but what it means is you can walk through your circumstances differently today. And we want to help you do that. So we would love for you to take just a moment and fill the card out that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side, it says salvation. On the other side, it says need prayer. If you'll fill out the side of the card that says salvation and take it to our info center as we finish up here today, they've got a Bible for you. They want to give you just as a gift. And, and we want to help you take the next step in your faith. So please take advantage of that. We'd love to give that to you and help you grow in your faith. If you're watching online and you'd like to respond, you can simply text uh, the word salvation to the number 555-888. And when you do that, we're going to respond back to you and help you take the next step in your faith journey. We actually um, are going to help you, whether you're here in Indiana or around the world, we're going to help you find a church that you can get plugged in and connected to. And I, I mentioned this earlier. I, I got a message this last week from a young man in Japan looking for a church. And I helped him find a church in Japan. So we will help you find a church no matter where you may be. So this is what we're going to do right now. The prayer, or the prayer team's going to come forward as we're singing one final song. They'll be on either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason at all today, find one of them as we begin to sing. Let them agree with you. And then in just a moment, when we're done singing in this final song, uh, Pastor Todd Stanley is our worship pastor. He's going to come and he'll close us out and dismiss us. So why don't you stand your feet over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go today, guys. I tell you guys often, I hope you know it. I love you more than you know. And I'm so glad that I get to be your pastor. Have a wonderful day. God bless you.